Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 10th, 2017, and it is Friday, 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 time for the Expert Council Show. i got a good lineup for you today. Here's what we're going to talk about. Making and flavoring yogurt cheese, also known as Lebna from Chef Keith Snow. Saving for College Beyond the 529 Plan with John Pugliano. Staying on top of the surplus firearms market with Tim Glantz. And I just realized in the uh, outline, I wrote Time Glance. That's an interesting little change to Tim Glantz's name. Just one letter, the Time Glance, huh? Anyway, dealing with invasive blackberries from Erica Strauss. Keeping microgreens cool for the market with Stephen Harris. Harvesting scion wood with Nicholas Ferguson and getting a new podcast off the ground with me, Jack Spirico. We'll have all of that for you and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Bob Wells Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. And our TSP Business Directory sponsor of the day is InstantPublisher.com. They specialize in custom printed books, calendars, advertising, and print design. Contact through them through the TSP Business Directory to self-publish your book. So if you're an aspiring author, it's never been easy to get your easier than it is now to get your book out there. And InstantPublisher.com can help you with that. You can find them at the TSP Business Directory, and you can learn more about them by clicking on their link. In today's episode, remember you too can have your business featured in the directory for as little five bucks per six month term. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, and we're just going to start to see I think uh, Vietnam dominating uh, some of the some of the history segment anyway. Uh, also the uh, the uh, the uh, the Great Society of LBJ, which is the lead one for today, 1965 being the year. Because the episode is 1965, so our first se segment today is The Great Society Exceeds, Expe Exceeds Expectations and All Sense of Reality. Second segment that I have to choose from is Fighting Fire with Fire. That's the one I'm going to read by Southpaw Ben. And The Great Northeast Blackout from Alex Shrugged. Notable births this year. Rodney King died at age 47 in 2012 as of a drug overdose. His beating by the LAPD caused a riot. Can't we all just get along? Apparently not. Dmitry Medov, uh, current prime minister of Russia. Uh, Bashar al-Assad, current president of Syria. J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter series. 
Alexander Siddig, Dr. Bashir on Star Trek's Deep Space Nine. I can tell that Alex is a, um, a, a Trekkie just like I am because he's always got this, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, people from, uh, Star Trek in. Uh, Amy F., mother of South Prop Ben, born in, currently in, in, born in Pennsylvania, currently works as an RN in a nursing home. In music, Shania Twain was born this year. Comedy, Chris Rock. In movies, Charlie Sheen, Ben Stiller, and Robert Downey Jr. This year in film, The Sound of Music with Julie Andrews, Dr. Zhivago, Russia's Coming Apart at the Seams, uh, and A Charlie Brown Christmas. And I, as I said yesterday with the Rudolph, we also watch A Charlie Brown Christmas every year in the Spirico home. We watch it with the grandkids now. But I think when I'm an old fart, and if it was just me as an old fart in your Christmas time, I'm going to freaking watch Charlie Brown Christmas, one of the greatest pieces of animation ever made before everything got all fancy and crazy. Uh, we'll leave it there for the bullet points today. Let's take a look at fighting fire with fire. I want to start talking a little bit about what's going on in a place called Vietnam because we're going to hear a lot more about it as we go forward. Quote, burn yourselves, not your cards, end quote. This was the cry that went out from some New Yorkers during the anti-draft protest. One of the protesters did just that three days later. Throughout 1965, multiple anti-war activists performed self-immolation in protest of the United States' involvement in Vietnam, especially the bombing and napalming of innocent civilians, especially women and children. The first was Alice Hertz, who was first known activist in the United States to have set herself on fire protesting war, taking her example from Chich Quang Duc, who was uh, discussed on On Fire for Freedom of Faith. Next was Norman Morrison, who went outside the office of the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, and handed his one-year-old daughter to someone in the crowd, then proceeded to douse himself in kerosene and lit himself on fire. Finally, the last person to protest the war in this fashion was the man whose story I started with, Roger Laporte, went outside of the Dag. Hammersgold Library in November 9th, just one week after Norman Morrison's protest, doused himself in gasoline and set himself on fire. My take by Southpaw Ben. In follow-up to my previous segment on self-immolation, we can see the practices come to the United States. I remember hearing a story about a man handing his infant child off to a stranger in the crowd, then lighting himself on fire for the first time, and it just hitting me hard, even though I was in my early teens. Unlike the Buddhist monk in 1963 who was able to capture the world's attention and get acknowledgement for the suffering of the Vietnamese Buddhists, the United States protesters were a lot less successful. Norman Morrison's was the more, most successful as the media grabbed hold of the fact that he had his one-year-old daughter with him right before he lit himself on fire. Before researching this, his was the only one of the three that I had even vaguely aware of occurring in the U.S. Okay, I'm going to tell you that as much as I am a history buff, I didn't know this happened at all. That's part of why I read this one today. I know that we're reaching where we're starting to see the protests and we're starting to see the clash between the, the pro-war crowd and the anti-war crowd of Vietnam coalesce around uh, Johnson's expansion of the war. And I'll tell you what I what bothers me most about this whole period of time. I know that if I was an 18-year-old kid in 1965 where I would have came down on this, I wouldn't have been out in the street smoking dope, growing my hair long with a mustache. Um, I, would have, I would have been at a recruiter's office to do my duty. If I was the same young man I was at 18 
in, in this life, had I been born 20 years earlier, uh, that's who I would have been in that life because it's who I was. I joined the Army at 17, and on my 18th birthday, August 2nd, 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. I had no doubt that I would end up going to Iraq. None. I mean, the, 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 the fact that that started on my birthday just seemed like, you know, it was going to be that way. Never wavered. I, I believed 100% in my nation and what we were doing there. And to be fair, I think it was a lot more clear than what we were doing in Vietnam. Um, Vietnam, maybe someday I'll do a show on the whole history of how we ended up in the conflict of Vietnam. Because it goes back almost 100 years prior to us even setting foot on the, on the soil there. And it's an understanding of why we were not going to win that war. We weren't. Because we were just the next group of foreigners to occupy their country as far as they were concerned. But I would have. I would have signed up and, 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 and been ready to go out and green with my new M16. I would have been ready to go out and risk my life. And as I look back now, as I look back as a, as a uh, 20-something that started to question things, you know, many years ago, when I look at the history of Vietnam, how it turned out, how we fought it, how everything went on, and, and why we really never needed to be there. There's, there's no compelling reason for the United States to have ever gotten involved in Vietnam at all. Um, I wonder how many people today or in the future will march off to a war because they believe in their country without first asking whether or not they believe in their country. Do they believe in the cause? And is the cause just? And does the cause make sense? Does the cause have a path to victory? Or does the cause have more of an opportunity to enrich corporations than it does preserve freedom and to, to, than it does to defend our nation? I think in World War II, this nation knew what it was fighting against and it knew why it was fighting. I think we made some mistakes in World War II. Robert McNamara mentioned in this history segment, I remember listening to an interview with him And as he got older and was willing to like say what really happened, and they were asking him not about Vietnam, they were asking him about his role in in the firebombing of Tokyo in World War II. And this is what he said. He said, had the United States lost the war for what we did in Japan, we would have been tried as war, war criminals, and we would have been convicted. And uh, the same guy's making decisions here. The same guy's making decisions here. Lots of them. And many young men are running off to war, and many young men are saying, the hell with this. I'm not giving my life for this. I don't understand why you're asking me to do this other than it's your duty. It's your duty. Well, I think the duty that I have as an American citizen is first here at home. And if you want me to go do something somewhere else, then you do owe it to me to explain to me what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, what makes us right, and how it will make my country safer. And if you can't do that, then saying it's my duty is not good enough. I hope more young people will start to think that way as we head into the future. Because there's the old saying, what if there was a war and nobody showed up to fight it? And I think there's a time for force. I think there's a time for war. 
There really is. There's, there are times when evil must be confronted. There's also times when evil's doing whatever evil's going to do, whether you get involved or not. And getting involved just makes matters worse. And more and more, I feel like parts of the world today, that's what we're doing. We're making evil worse. We're empowering evil through attacking it. Evil empires, evil systems that are built on a fallacy, sooner or later fail if you leave them to do so. My take by Jack Spierko. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring the show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. With that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into our first call. I have a question for Keith Snow on making Lebna, a.k.a. yogurt cheese, which is one of my favorite things to eat. So, Keith, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow from Harvest Eating. Wanted to answer Nick's question from Nebraska about yogurt cheese, commonly called, at least commonly called in the Middle East, Labna. It's spelled L-A-B-N-E-H. And uh, I actually used to make it all the time with... Um, our own yogurt that I was making, but I've also made it just with um, pretty good quality Greek yogurt from the store. And when you make this, you want to use a full-fat yogurt, and these Greek yogurts tend to already be on the thick side, so it makes the process of making this lebna that much easier. And what it is, it's, it's plain yogurt. It's not flavored yogurt. I assume you could use flavored yogurt um if it was the right one. But in the Middle East, countries like Syria, Lebanon, Israel, this is a very common food. And you want to take good, plain yogurt, and what you do is hang it in cheesecloth. And it usually hangs anywhere from 12 to 24 hours. The longer it hangs, the more thick it will become. Now, when you deal with these Greek yogurts, you look at them and you think, man, there's no liquid going to come out of that, but it does. And, and, uh, if you get like a, a jar of, or a, you know, a thing of Danon at the store and you open it up, take some out, and the next day you go to take some more out, you'll notice that some of the whey is pooling in there and you could like pour it off. There's, there's a lot of liquid inside of, um, this type of yogurt. So when you hang it in layers of cheesecloth, and this needs to be done in the refrigerator, and that can be tricky. You kind of have to uh, figure out how to hang it. But assuming that you can do that, you, you put the um, yogurt into the cheesecloth, you draw the ends up, you tie it, and then you hang it over a bowl. You don't want to just hang it in the fridge because it's going to drip liquid everywhere. So after 12 to 24 hours, I would check it and see. The longer it hangs, the thicker and denser it becomes. Now you've got the start of this amazing stuff. So how do you flavor it? And this is what Nick was getting at. Now, there's uh, many different ways to flavor it. Now, when you go to Israel, you're going to find um, something called a zatar, and it's Z-A apostrophe A-T-A-R. 
And this is a very common uh, spice mixture, and it has some interesting things in it. Uh, I won't get into that. Needless to say, you're better off buying it from a high-quality spice merchant, and you can do a search on the Internet. Make sure you're buying from somebody that moves a lot of spices. I would su- uh, suggest maybe somebody like Penzi's. Um, they've got a catalog and online. Anyway, you get this Zatar, and the first time I tried it, um, where I really enjoyed it, I've tried it before, you know, maybe 15 years ago, and I must have had some crap, but my uh, old, what was she, my old publicist from New York City, um, who's a, a very skilled woman, her husband uh, is, is was Israeli or is Israeli, and he was over in Israel, and uh, they bought some of that for me. Um, I was a new client, and that was a I don't know a gift that they sent me. Actually, we had just had a baby, and so they sent me a, a little bag of this zatar and then a, a custom embroidered uh, baby, not a blanket, but like a cloth or something for my son Garrett. I guess that was in 2009, but. I immediately opened up the Zatar and this stuff is amazing. It's got, it's kind of like, you know, if you've tasted a good herbs de Provence, this is, it's not similar at all except the fact that it's got a lot of things going on in it. A lot of different textures, aromas, flavors, really interesting stuff. And, uh, that's the last time I think I made was probably 2010 any of this yogurt cheese or, or labna. And I use that Zatar in it, and it is awesome. And this is definitely a way that you're going to want to try it. And if you ever visit uh, Israel, Jerusalem, places like that, try and find um, this dish. But what you'll do is you'll take your yogurt cheese, you'll put it in a bowl, and you're going to need olive oil, good olive oil. And this is extra virgin olive oil. You can't go to the store and buy, I don't know, you just can't use cheap crap. You have to use some serious good green peppery olive oil. So you're, you'll take a little of that and drizzle it over it, um, some freshly squeezed lemon juice, some of this zatar, and then I would suggest a, a salt, and this is a little highbrow for some of you, um, but you can go in a lot of stores and definitely online and you buy a salt. It comes from Britain. It's called Maldon, M-A-L-D-O-N, and I've got, um, I'm actually getting low on it myself, but I love to use it. It's a flaked sea salt. And what's beautiful about it are the flakes are very, um, uh, how do I describe it? They're not chunks, but they're like little teeny slices of salt, really interesting texture. And it's got a really amazing flavor and it's not expensive. You just have to find it. It comes in a little white and green box, Maldon. But if you use zatar, good olive oil, lemon juice, and some maldon, you're gonna kill it with your um, with your labna. Now that's just one way to make it. So the next way is a very simple one, and and the one I just said it would be great served with a good fresh pita bread. And if you have to buy it at the store, take it and put it on top of a cat, hot cast iron skillet uh, for a minute or two to kind of get some life into it. Or make your own. Very easy. And it also would go good with something like naan, N-A-A naan, which is a famous uh, Indian flatbread. It has yogurt in it, by the way. So that's something really great to serve this sort of um, 
you know, za'atar, olive oil, um, extra virgin. I mean, yeah, I just said the extra virgin olive oil, lemon juice, and, and maldon. That's a great one. Another one that's super simple is just an herbed labna. So finely minced parsley, tarragon, some more of that good salt, and minced chilies. I'd like um, a red Maybe like a, a red jalapeno or maybe a Thai bird chili, something spicy, but fine minces, not big dopey slices. Got to be fine minced, mix in there. Serve that on any kind of crackers. That's amazing. Then you'll see um, something that's kind of just like, we'll just call it a veggie one. And you can do minced scallion, minced carrot. And when I say minced, again, not quarter inch dices. You're not going to want to chew on a raw quarter-inch diced piece of carrot. I'm talking about finely minced. So you would need to make um, planks, then you're going to make batons, and then you're going to cut it into a very fine minced mince. And then celery, and you serve that on bagels, mix it all together with a little salt. So you've got scallion, carrot, celery. You could even put some red bell pepper in there, and that would be awesome. Mix that together with a little salt until the yogurt cheese is tasting really good. You can serve it on bagels or something really great is if you can find some super dark bread like a like a dark pumpernickel something like that would be amazing with that cheese on it now i'll leave you with one more way to serve and this would be kind of sweet and again these combinations that i'm giving you you're going to be pretty classic uh over there in the middle east now good raw honey not you know not sue b from the store i'm talking about Find a local beekeeper and get some good raw honey. So you take a bowl, swirl your labna around. You're going to want this to be probably chilled. And then drizzle it with some good raw honey, minced apricots, and again, fine mince, and then minced black mission figs. If you have to use dates, that'll work too. So those combinations there are pretty classic to the Middle East. The, the apricots, the black mission figs. I mean, you'll see it even, uh, in places like Morocco, but that would be a, a great combination. So I hope I've given you a little ideas on how to, uh, work with, um, your yogurt cheese. It is really great stuff and it's especially great if you're controlling the milk that goes in. Like I used to do it. I had raw milk. And I would make yogurt, and then I would hang it and make the cheese. And my favorite way, honestly, was the minced scallion, carrot, celery. And I used to always put uh, bell pepper. That stuff is legendary. So I hope that helps you out. And uh, I wanted to uh, thank you for sending in the questions. Feel free, guys and gals, to send in more questions. And I wanted to make an announcement um, for those of you that are interested uh, in the Food Storage Feast course. Um, we have adjusted the price. It's now $97. If you're MSB, make sure you log into your MSB because you get a significant discount from that price. So uh, with that, I want to thank everybody and thank Jack for the show. Take care, people. Okay, I have a couple additions to this one because this is a big deal for me. I do a lot of this. Um, number one, I'm going to say that it's always a good idea, and I learned this from John Schmada, to put a big pinch of salt into it when you're making it, no matter what else you're going to do with it. It brings out the other flavors, and it helps it to cure a little bit. Number two, Keith mentioned hanging it up in a cheesecloth. You can do that. I have links to most of this stuff in the show notes, but I recommend flour sack towels. Because they are infinitely reusable, you can wash them in the washing machine and, and, and just keep using them. If you're going to do that for your food, I recommend you kind of say, you know, 
Throw them in on the, like the small cycle with just plain water. Wash them with hot water and no detergent. Or you can just rinse them out in the sink and hang them up. But you can use them over and over and over and over again. Next, I used to hang mine up too, and it was always a pain in the ass to find a place to hang it and put a bowl under it. What I do now is I take a colander, a steel colander. I lay the flour sack towel in it. I dump my yogurt in there. Uh, and I mix in whatever flavorings, like you heard chefs talk about adding these different things. And I like to mix whatever I'm going to flavor it with right then. So I'll add my salt and I'll add my other stuff. Fold the towel over it, set that in a bowl, and because it's a colander, it'll hold itself above the bottom of the bowl. And if you want it to get a little bit more firm, take a big can, like a 16-ounce can of canned tomatoes or something like that, set it on top of it. Leave it overnight. Don't worry, it's not going to go bad. This is a preservation technique. And you will get a little bit more firm, and you won't have to look for a place to have it hanging and dangling. Uh, the way, don't throw it away. Drink it, feed it to your animals, do something with it. It's low probiotics. Okay? Those of you on paleo, when you do this, The lactobacillus get going, and that's what makes it more tart than even yogurt, and it starts munching it away, and it makes it a little more tart. It becomes a little more firm. And what is the lactobacillus consuming? Carbohydrates. So it reduces an already low carbohydrate to an even lower carbohydrate thing. That's another reason it's good for you, and loaded with probiotics. Okay, my suggestion for a Zatar is actually from a U.S. company. Um, it It's... One of the best I've found, especially for the value. And you've heard me mention the company before with other uh, spices and seasonings. It is um, Hoosier Hill Farm. You can get a pound of this stuff uh, for 15 bucks. And about the only thing is it may not, it may be more than you need if you don't use a lot of it. But it's still a better price than anything else that's a really good deal. And you can always throw some and dry can it. One of the principal ingredients in Zatar, which gives it its distinctive flavor, it's kind of a lemony, citrusy thing, is sumac. And it's the, it's the Middle Eastern sumac that's similar to, but not the same as the sumac, like staghorn and smooth sumac that grows here. It can kind of go rancid if it's not stored properly over a long period of time because its primary ingredient is what? Acetic acid, a.k.a. vitamin C. And it's only stable at room temperatures with lots of oxygen around it for so long because as an antioxidant, it scatters up excess O2 and oxygen radicals, free radical oxygens. So that's why it can kind of go bad after if it's not. That's why Chef's talking about it being turned over and moving a lot of it. So that's a little addition. And then the next thing is I'll give you two of my favorite recipes for this. And I don't do amounts. I just look at it and say that's how much it goes there. Coarse ground, cracked black pepper, and almond slivers. You know, like the ones you can buy, they're slivers. You take those slivers and you give them a rough chop with a knife so they're not quite whole slivers. When they get in there and sit, they kind of soften. It's, it's cool. It's good. And that's good with a little honey on top of it when you serve it instead of mixing the honey in. Then the other one that actually go give you two, basil and fresh garlic, chopped a big handful of fresh, finely chopped basil and minced garlic and mix that in. Everybody that's ever eaten that one likes that one. And the next one, garlic and jalapeno. And red jalapenos if you can get them, but green jalapenos fine if you don't want it to be too hot. DC and depithum. Those are all awesome. Love this topic because it's so good for you. It's so easy to do. And if you want to do something with like friends, family, etc. coming over that's different, guys, this is so simple. 
I mean, it has to sit overnight, but it really takes about five minutes worth of work. And it will blow people away. And there's so much you can do with it. Please give it a try if you haven't yet. Next up, we have a call or a question, I'm sorry, for John Pugliano on saving for your children's education. John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, the financial question involves saving for your child's college education. Now, a number of different listeners have been asking Jack about this, so I'm not going to read one particular question or or attribute to any one person. So, in general, I know many of you are interested in how you can save uh, for your college education for your kids or for their future, and that's what I want to address today. Now, normally, the standard answer is that you should use a 529 plan. A 529 college savings plan is set up similar to the way an IRA works, where you can put money away into some type of an investing or savings instrument. The advantage to a 529 is that money can be contributed to that, similar to the way you would for your IRA. It can go in there pre-tax dollars, and then while it's in there over the period of you know, 18 years or whatever you're saving for your child's education, it can grow tax-free. And then whenever you pull that money out, as long as it's used for legitimate educational expenses, it's not taxable. Now, on the surface of things, that sounds like a great idea. In fact, when they first came out, and I forget when that was, maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s, something like that, I set them up for each of my children. Incidentally, I have six children. Most of them are grown now. And so what I'm telling you, I believe, is not only sound financial information, but it's also based on my own personal experience. Although they look good on paper, after I was involved with one for a few years, I stopped contributing to it for the simple fact that they were too restrictive. If you think your 401k plan with your employer has restrictions on it, you haven't seen anything until you look at these 529 plans. Now, I do need to preface all this. I'm not a tax attorney. I'm not a CPA. So take what I'm saying as personal opinion and with a grain of salt, you need to go out and research this on your own. But from what I've seen, every 529 plan not only has limited options of what you can invest in it, but most of them only allow you to make one decision per year. So if you decide to move into the S&P 500 into, you know, a broad index-based fund like that, and you do that in January of 2017, you can't change your mind until January of 2018. Well, a lot can happen over 12 months. I personally am not going to tie my money up in anything that doesn't offer me some kind of liquidity to move it around. Now, I obviously realize I couldn't withdraw that money. That was never my intent. But my intent would be not to be invested in some type of a fund or an asset class that is clearly going through a downtrend, a secular downtrend in the market. And as I was saving for my kids' education, that happened many times over these last 25-plus years. You can think back to some of those dates, 2000, 2008. So in my opinion, the problem, the biggest problem with these 529 plans, number one, is that they are too restrictive and don't offer you any liquidity to move your investments around. That's number one. Number two is you have to use that money the way the government tells you. For example... It's got to be, you know, an accredited university or an accredited tech school or something like that. If your kid wants to take the money that they've saved for 18 years and start a business, well, you can't use that 529 money unless you pay taxes and penalties. 
I think that alternative forms of education were important in the past, but I think going forward, they are going to be even more critical. I mean, think about this. Just as an example, Steven Spielberg, who's obviously a very talented director and producer, he got rejected multiple times from prestigious film schools like the University of Southern California. He ended up going, I believe it was to Cal State at Long Beach or somewhere. Okay, it was a second rate, you know, a lower tier school. And actually, I think he was only there for a year or so and he dropped out altogether. Now, we know that Steven Spielberg, regardless of whether the academics wanted to accept him or not, he has had a fabulous career in Hollywood. The point I want to make here is, if you were that Steven Spielberg kid today, would you even waste your time submitting your application to a film school? Or would you just go out and create amazing movies and video and all kinds of, you know, interactive content and then put that out there on Facebook and YouTube and build an audience? Well, to me, that's the clear path to success for a future film director, not that you have some degree from some prestigious school. Who cares about that? People care about results. And so I think that if you have young kids today, you should seriously be thinking about alternative forms of education and not just go lockstep into this lemming university kind of uh, attitude that we've had in this country for the last uh, 50, 60 years. Ah, I'm digressing. Okay, let's get back online here. 529. I think they're a bad idea. I think they're too restrictive. What would I do? Rather than saving for my kid's education in a 529 or contributing to some type of, uh, you know, uniform gift to minors act or something, what I would do is I would remember that money is fungible, meaning that money can be spent regardless of, it, of its source. So if you have $50,000 in a savings account or you have $50,000 in your retirement fund or you have $50,000 in gold or in bonds or wherever you have it, it's still $50,000. And you can take some of that and use that to fund your child's education. Don't think that just because you know you and your child are saving for their future that it has to be in an earmarked fund that specifically says education or says you know for that kid's future. You can have it in a multitude of different places. For me, again, I'm not offering investment advice here, but for me, as a personal decision, the best place that I think to save your money, whether you're doing it for retirement or for your kid's education, is a Roth IRA. It can grow tax-free, provided you don't take it out until you're 59 and a half. Ah, but there's an exemption. A couple exemptions, in fact. Number one, money from a Roth IRA can be withdrawn penalty-free, and remember, there's no taxes on it to begin with, so it can be withdrawn penalty-free for qualifying higher educational expenses. Again, I'm not a tax attorney. I'm not a CPA. Check about your particular situation, but it's my understanding that that can be done not only for your child, but also for your grandchild. I think it can be done for any child. I think as long as you give the money away for education, it can come out of a Roth early before you're 59 and a half penalty-free. If you're already over 59 and a half, it doesn't matter. You can take it out penalty-free. Also, what most people don't know about a Roth IRA, unlike a 401k or unlike an IRA, you can always take out the money that you contribute tax and penalty-free. So, for example, if you've been putting $5,000 a year away into your Roth IRA and you do that for 20 years, you've contributed $100,000. Well, you can take up to $100,000 out of that Roth IRA before you're 59 and a half without any penalty because that's $100,000 that you put in there after tax. You've already paid the taxes on that. 
you can withdraw it tax and penalty free. It's your money. So again, that to me would be the logical place where if I was going to save for my child's education, fully funding my Roth IRA and my wife's Roth IRA would be the first thing where I would be putting my money. I'm running out of time here. Two quick thoughts on saving for a child's education. It should be just like saving for your retirement. Buy and hold strategies work if you have many, many years before you're going to collect the money. So 20, 30, 40 years, buy and hold strategies work very well. So when you start putting money away for your child, you can invest it in the stock market or in riskier type things are going to be very volatile because your child's, you know, one years old. They're not going to need that money for 18 years. But when that child starts to become a teenager, you need to start backing off on the risk because they're going to need that money in a few years. And the stock market can completely tank and collapse and fall apart, have a catastrophic loss when the kid needs the money. That's the same thing you should be considering with your retirement money. Buy and hold strategy, just squirreling money away in an index fund when you're 20 years old. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make as much sense, though, when you're 55 years old. So when you're saving for your kid's education, be thinking about how soon it is that they're going to need that money and then take the appropriate risk. Finally, the last thing I want to say is that the most important item about saving for your kid's education isn't what kind of return you get on it or even what kind of money you're going to have at the end of the period. What's most important is that you and your child are learning how to earn money and how to save it. If you can spend 18 years of your kid's life teaching them the benefits of hard work and frugal living and not spending everything they make, and you can instill in them those kind of values and that kind of character, more importantly, you can instill it in yourself and you can demonstrate it to your kids by example, well, that's the best lesson they can learn. It's certainly going to be more important than anything they're ever going to learn at college. Well, hey, those are my thoughts. If you'd like to hear more about my wealth building principles or my insight in the stock market, please check out the Wealth Steading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Invisible Wealth. Okay, I agree mostly. There's some concerns that you have to take into consideration here. So one of my primary concerns with this is that your your child's not going to qualify for his own Roth IRA. You're going to put the money in your Roth IRA, which is fine, except there's there's funding limits. You can only put so much money in an Roth IRA, and once you go over a certain income, you can't put any money in a Roth IRA. You don't qualify for one anymore because you're too rich. Yeah, that's that's a real thing. So one concern is if you're using your Roth IRA as like a holding nest for your kid's college, and if you're prolific like John and you got six kids and you're going to pull the money that you've contributed, again, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of advice that most people don't realize. A Roth IRA, if I put 100000 in there and there's 200000 in there right now, I can take 100000 out and leave 100000 in there, and I don't play jack squat because I already paid tax on it before it went in. It's not tax deferred. I I pay tax, and then I, sh I never pay tax on the earnings off of it. So it's just my money. I'm getting it back. Now, there is, I think, a certain amount of time the money has to be in there before you can begin withdrawals, but it's like five years. So for most college planning, that's not a problem anyway. However, if I'm, if I'm you know, limited to $5,500 a year in contributions, it is possible that if I fund enough of my kids' education, I don't have enough money left in my Roth IRA for my retirement goals. So I'm not opposed to some level of earmarking money for your children's future and having it 
outside of a Roth IRA. As John mentioned, risk tolerance. If I have money and I'm saying this money is for Johnny's life establishment fund, which is the Jack Spirico term for this, because I don't give a shit if he goes to high school or goes to college or tech school or learns to fly helicopters or starts a business. If I'm putting money aside for my kid and now I'm putting it aside for my grandkids, that money is money for them to go out and do big shit with, like invest in equipment so that they can do that movie making that John talked about. And I don't necessarily need to tax shelter that money because I shouldn't be taking large risks with it in the first place. So there's nothing wrong with if you... Because one of the reasons we earmark money for a college fund is so it doesn't get spent to remodel the bathroom or to pay off dad's gambling debts. Okay? Like, that's money for Johnny and that's money for Susie. So you can open a simple bank account which if you end up with a lot of money deposited by opening a new bank account, a new bank gives you greater uh, deposit insurance coverage, by the way, and you can pay the piddly tax on the piddly little bit of interest they give you, and that money is dead solid safe. And then when, when Johnny or Susie or Tommy or Tammy gets up to a certain point and they have an incredible talent for something and they want to invest in it, It's not their money. It's your money on their behalf. So you can say, you know what, Tammy? I really think that this is something that you, you could go, you know, and do great things with. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you $5,000 if you bring me a budget for what you're going to do with that money. And you can go spend it. And there's no tax implications because you're going to pay for it. You're not going to give it to Tammy. So it's not income to her. You're just going to go pay the bills. And that could be anything from I'm going to go out and pay Tam so Tammy can go to school or I'm going to go out and spend the money so that Tammy can get the latest editing software so she can become a master video or audio editor or start an urban farm order. But we're not going to say, hey, Tammy, there's $50,000, $100,000 sitting here. You can just have at it. And people say, well, that's not what parents do when they use 529 funds. Well, they do in a roundabout way, because once Johnny goes off to college, he can just pick all his courses and pay for all his books and just have a freaking party and spend that money so fast, even though he's not doing bad things with it. He's doing state-approved things with it, but you can still burn through tens of thousands of dollars a year and end up with very little to show for it. Where if we have the money in a place where we just put it in a little pocket for Tammy or Johnny or Susie or Mary, then we get some say in how that money gets spent. We should because we saved it. We should also be teaching them to save for themselves. Bank accounts, any kind of tax-deferred thing they can do for themselves. But I hate 529 plans. I think they are the devil. I think everything about them is the devil. And don't even get me started on prepaying your child's tuition inside your state to lock in today's college rates. Because if you do that, you're going to end up paying a really big stupid tax in the future, I promise you. Life establishment fund. Every time you hear, say for your child's education, I want you to replace it with the words, life establishment fund. Life establishment fund, because it could be, you know what, Dad, I went and got a good job, it pays decent money, it's where I want to start, I don't know where it's going to lead to, but what I need to be able to do, instead of paying rent like a fool, is buy a fixer-up house, I'm going to live in it and fix it up while I work my dead-end job until I figure out what I'm going to do, and when that house is fixed up, I'm going to sell that freaking house... And you say, okay, well, then what we're going to do is we're going to use this money to make the down payment on your house. We're going to see what your shortfall on the payment on the house is. 
against your salary, earmarking a part of your salary that should be enough to pay most of your, your rental expense. And we're going to see how much you need for what improvements you need. We're going to find the right property together, and we're going to do that. Maybe your kid is the next real estate mogul. But the government is not looking to empower entrepreneurship. They're looking to empower serfdom. You do not put your money in their plans unless you know exactly why, and the advantage is yours. And the only one I know that does that, the only one I know that does that in this world is what John told you, Roth IRA, And for some of you who are lucky, with an enlightened employers, there are Roth 401ks, which means when you leave your job, you can roll into the Roth IRA. And always make sure, if you're going to participate in your employer's uh, 401k, if they ain't contributing money, the only reason you better do it is if there's options in there to shelter your money as cash. If there isn't, don't do it. Now, if they're matching dollar for dollar or doing 3% of your salary or something like that, go for it, because that's, that's, that's free money as a way to look at it. Otherwise... Control your money outside of their system wherever you can. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, and all the listeners out there at Survival Podcast. Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an expert panel answer for uh, Don from Maine. And Don said, I was happy to get a Mosin to Gaunt when they were plentiful and inexpensive. I've heard of similar instances of the past of guns flooding the market. How do I keep up to date about such, up, uh, such opportunities? Uh, ha- thanks for all you do. Well, Jack, I'm assuming you're meaning all the surplus guns that, that can flood the market. And, uh, yeah, over the years, uh, I've described this before on the, the shows I've talked about surplus where there's kind of a, uh, an upside down bell curve in surplus prices where, you know, when something's new, it's kind of hard to get. They're expensive. And as more surplus stuff comes in, that price drops. And then the market generally gets flooded either due to governments releasing excess stocks like has happened with the uh, Mosin Nagants or something becoming obsolete and getting dumped and flooding the market all at once and then prices uh, dry up and it goes back up the curve and we're definitely seeing that with Mosin Nagants they're still for what they are uh, uh, not very expensive but the days of the 99 and 89 and $79 ones I believe have passed and not coming back uh, funny thing, the first surplus firearm I ever bought, uh, my dad actually bought it for me. I was 17 at a gun show. It was a Chinese Type 53 uh, Mosin carbine, and I gave $40 for it. And these days, you generally can't touch one of those for under $200. Um, and, and you see a lot of that. Uh, I remember back in the 90s, you could buy Turkish Mausers with the bayonet, uh, nice shooters, $40 all day long, $39.95. That was the wholesale price, but, uh, you, you know, you, then you were gonna either pay a dealer markup or you're gonna pay a dealer transfer fee if you found a wholesaler willing to sell to you like that. Uh, these days you can barely touch the bayonet by itself for 40 bucks, and if you see the rifle, it's 150, 200 dollars typically. Uh, so how to catch those deals when they come around? Uh, there's no one site that's a clearinghouse for, hey, what's cheap on the market? The Curio and Relic forums over on AR15.com are a good place to check out. And the other thing is uh, just get on the mailing list for all these companies that deal in surplus firearms. Uh, Classic Arms, J&G Sales, AIM Surplus, Copes Distributing. There, there are several others out there. And uh, watch their emails when they come in and see what's new on the market and uh, watch the trends. Uh, another one was the, the Gaunt pistols. Uh, you know, a few years ago they were 99 bucks for those. Now you can, you, you're not going to touch one anywhere for that. Uh, if you buy some guns at the bottom of the market on there, uh, you definitely, uh, are probably going to see a pretty good increase of value in about any of them. Uh, 
I haven't seen any yet that stayed low in value when you bought them at the bottom of the market. So you've always got something that you're going to, you know, at least you're never going to lose money on it unless you, you know, treat it like garbage and destroy it. Uh, but, you know, and, and that stays true, you know, not just for surplus guns, but everything in the surplus business. You know, the, the pricing goes like that. There's there's always good deals on the market, things that go down, things that come up. And you just have to uh, watch the dealers, see what they've got and see what's coming out. Uh, you know, in the field gear and clothing like I sell, you know, when we get a new deal on something, we pop it up either on our Facebook page. Uh, it's Facebook.com slash Great Surplus Deals. And uh, anything that goes on there also is on my Twitter account at Old Grouch. S U R P old grouch serp. So uh, you know those can. That's how you follow with me to see what I'm getting new. Or we got an email list that you can sign up for also. Uh, uh, all my information goes out on all three sources usually, and uh, you'll find all the other uh, uh, dealers that deal in like surplus firearms are going to follow the same pattern for how they market and how they keep people informed. So as far as how to catch the good deals when they come around, uh, that, that's how you have to do it. There's no one place that's like a clearinghouse for everything. You just have to find the places that are likely to have it and uh, pay attention to what they're doing. Hope that helps and hope that gives you a little insight. And Yeah, everybody that got in on the Mosins on the cheap, you know, they've already seen the value of their rifles go up. And uh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, they're probably going to see a lot more value in those rifles because uh, they're not making any more. They're all pieces of history, and at the same time, they're all good functional pieces that you can use and you can shoot. So it's kind of a win-win if you got them. Hope that helps, and if you got any other questions, as always, you can catch me. Uh, Email us on my website at oldgrouch.com, and uh, catch me on our store's Facebook page and anywhere else. Thanks for the great question. As always, Jack, thanks for the great podcast. I'm just going to add to that, when anything comes onto the surplus market as a firearm, no matter what anybody says about it, it's only good for making a lamp or something like that, don't believe it. If you have the money, buy a few of them. Uh, you're just listening to John talk about saving money for your life, life establishment fund and investing. Uh, buying military surplus firearms, especially when they hit the initial flood of the market, is one of the safest and secure investments you can make. They're not going to be worth less than you paid for them. It's not going to happen. And I defy anyone to go back and show me when uh, uh, an arm came out and was released in such numbers that it was stupid cheap that it is not more expensive today and can't easily be sold for more money today than when it was initially available. Do you know what Mose and Nagants are going for right now? If they're in decent shape, uh, they're going for around 300 bucks. Now, I guess it was about five or six years ago, the height of the big dump that came on the market. And you could go to a gun show, and you could buy them wrapped in paper and cosmoline, never issued, okay? Three for $200 or one for 89 bucks. Okay? Does that make my point? And I remember, I remember back in the 80s, when at a place called Lanco in, in, in Possville, Pennsylvania... I went in, I saw these guns. There was tons of them there. They were $79.99, and they were a semi-automatic 30 caliber gun. That's what it said, semi-automatic military 30 caliber gun. And it had the sling and the oiler and all of that shit with it. And I went and asked my dad, Dad, should I get one of these? He said, no, son, those are junk. Everybody knows they're junk. They're trying to dump them right now. Don't waste your money on it. They're not even good for shooting deer. They were unissued, cosmoline wrapped, U.S. made, M1 carbines. 
They were 79 bucks. I remember when Swedish Mausers were about 65 to $70 a piece. Carl Gustav, pristine Swedish Mausers. If it's released and it's available, get it when everybody thinks it's, I'll do it later. That's what happens with, with, with all this stuff. The SKSs, everything. The Yugo SKSs, those used to be 70, 80 bucks. Look them up now. Oh, they're too heavy. Oh, the blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It, it, it happens the same way every time. And the thing to be keeping your eye out for right now is South Korea is sitting on an ever eleven shit ton of M1 carbines and M1 Garands. Like 600,000 Garands and like a thou, uh, uh, like a, a, a million carbines or something. It's something stupid. It, it, it's not that many. But whatever. It's, 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 it's like hundreds of thousands total. Okay? And the Obama administration didn't allow them to come back into the United States, which is a good thing because they wanted them destroyed. Uh, now with the Trump administration in place, if, we, if those things come back in, you'll, you'll see them selling for far less than a good Garand or M1 sells for because there's going to be so many of them. I might buy 10 of the M1s, the car means. I really might. Um, That, that's how sure I am of that investment. So with that, let's go into a different mode now and hear Erica Strauss talking about invasive blackberries. Now, I actually think blackberries can invade my property anytime they want to because they're yummy and I make wonderful things out of them like a big handful of them for breakfast or mead. However, there's a certain kind of blackberry in the Pacific Northwest that's a real big pain in the ass, and that's the one we're talking about here. So, Erica, what do we do about this? Hello, TSP. Erica Strauss here, author of The Hands-On Home. I'm calling in this week to answer a question from Drew, who wants to know how to deal with blackberry brambles. Drew says, I live northeast of Seattle, Washington, on about three-quarters of an acre in Zone 8B. We just moved into our house in December and are looking to start a garden for the spring. I have cut down all of the blackberries to the ground with a weed whacker and plan to till an area of about 30 feet by 20 feet. What can I do to keep the blackberries from coming back? Also, as this is my first garden in the Pacific Northwest, what plants would you recommend and potentially some perennials to add in with my annuals? Okay, thanks for the question, Drew, and welcome to the neighborhood. Here is the good news. The fact that you had blackberries growing in your future garden site means you probably are looking at an area with some really nice natural soil moisture. Here's the bad news. Everything else. Yeah, I'm sorry to tell you, but Himalayan blackberry brambles, which is the wild, weedy blackberry that takes over every, you know, side road ditch and everything in our area, along with uh, bindweed, knotweed, and at least in my yard, um, horsetail, are one of several particularly tenacious Pacific Northwest weeds. Very deep smothering under plastic or landscape cloth can help a bit with blackberries, but you're not going to be able to turn your plot into a garden for a while if you go kind of the smothering route. And even if you did, you'd probably be fighting blackberries, you know, popping up at a low level, um, you know, more or less until you die, I'm afraid. There are several hardcore brush killer type herbicides that will kill blackberries outright with a single application, 
but you really don't want to use any of them in a spot where you're going to be growing food for yourself, your family uh, in the near term. Less persistent herbicides like Roundup can eradicate blackberries in combination with manual methods of control like digging and tilling. But Roundup is going to be most effective if applied in the height of summer um, when those plants are actively growing. It's going to be not very effective now when the plants are still, you know, sort of pseudo dormant um, at the beginning of spring. And of course, it's a personal call how you feel about applying something like Roundup um, glyphosate in general, especially on a place where you're going to be growing food. I'm not a fan, you know, um, but you do you in this. From your question, I know that your goal is to turn this patch of ground into a garden this spring. So based on that, I'm just going to recommend you skip smothering and herbicides and go straight to you know, a very low-tech solution. I think to deal with the stumps and the roots of the blackberries you've already cut down, I recommend you just you not till, at least not yet. Um, if you till now, you're going to be basically propagating all the nice, healthy rhizomes and, and root system of those blackberries everywhere you till. You're just going to be chopping them up, spreading them around, and the blackberries are going to think, you know, you've just created a blackberry propagation nursery for them. They're going to be very happy. And within about four weeks of nice weather, every piece of blackberry root is going to be sending up its own plant, and you're going to have zillions of little baby blackberry plants to deal with. So I'm going to recommend you get to the root of the problem, literally, by doing your best to just physically remove as much of the root and rhizome structure of those brambles as you can by digging them out. Since the canes are already cut down, you shouldn't have to battle too many thorns, but I suggest you do get your gardening armor on for this job. Long, heavy pants, good boots, heavy-duty work gloves, and a hoodie is my uniform of choice for this kind of work. And then you just do your best to dig out the blackberry bush stumps um, and as much of that root system that spreads from those stumps as you can. Um, a de-handled garden fork and a pickmatic are particularly effective tools for work like this. You just loosen up the ground and pull out as much of the root and rhizome system as you can as you go. I always try to get chunks of roots like these out in big pieces if I can, because there's less chance you're going to leave pieces behind that will start to regrow. Now, Drew, I just did this exact thing with bindweed, systematically working my way through several beds that I honestly kind of let go uh, last year and manually removing all of the roots of the bindweed. It's pretty tedious, I admit, but it's also a great opportunity to put on your headphones, get some solo time and catch up on back episodes of TSP. In any event, once you've legitimately gotten as much of the major root system uh, out as you can, then I'd say, yeah, you can go ahead and till. The extra step of getting out the majority of the rhizome and the root will actually save you work going forward when you are battling fewer of those propagated little blackberry canes that will grow very rapidly in your nice tilled, freshly disturbed soil. And if you feel like you have the time doing like a multi-stage till where you till, wait two to four weeks and then till again, wait another two to four weeks and then till again, that will really help to eliminate any residual roots instead of just spreading them around because you're giving those roots just enough time to start to expend their energy, start to grow out, start to you know try and re repopulate the area, but you're not giving them enough time to recoup that energy from you know, leaf mass that's collecting solar energy and starting to regrow the root system. You know, this is one of those situations where there's no like perfect hippie solution. I mean, I, I prefer a no-till style gardening. Um, you know, I do really girly things like thinking of sad thoughts about the worms, you know, 
So I consider this recommendation of multiple tilling steps basically triage. You're doing this so you can get a plot established. You're doing it so you can beat back a tenacious, weedy plant. And you're doing it to hopefully avoid dumping a lot of nasty herbicide on the land where you want to be growing food. So this brings me to my next point. As soon as you do your final till, please plant something like right away. I honestly don't care if you just scatter buckwheat and clover out there, or if you have your broccoli and your parsnips seeds ready to go for your spring garden, just be ready to plant something to take advantage of that freshly disturbed ground because every blackberry seed that's been laying dormant in the soil for decades, that's been tilled up to the surface will take that disturbed soil as an invitation to start growing. So I think if you're willing to put in the prep work and do some strategic tilling, I do think you can beat back the blackberries enough to start using this plot for gardening this season. And going forward for the first couple seasons, especially keep an eye on regrowth from root pieces or uh, propagation from seeds because the cane shoots do shoot up and grow very quickly in our climate. If you walk your garden, you know, every couple of days, and if you dig or you pull out any little blackberry shoots you see, I think that should be fine going forward. I think you're going to, you're going to have some success turning this plot of bramble into a garden patch. Now, in terms of what perennials you might consider for your Pacific Northwest edible garden, you might laugh, but guess what grows really well here? Cane fruit, like blackberries. We grow cane fruit and most other berries really well in the Pacific Northwest. The same climate and soil that makes those wild blackberries, you know, pretty weedy and pretty invasive means you will have tremendous success with cultivated thornless blackberries like Triple Crown, which I adore, with raspberries, blackberries, boysenberries, and more. There's a reason a huge chunk of the nation's commercial raspberry and blackberry crop comes from Washington and Oregon. Those crops, those perennials, really thrive in our area. Most bush berries do really well here as as well. And with our typically acid soil and often soggy soil, depending on the site, blueberries can be a really natural choice. But huckleberries, currants, gooseberries, they all do very well here. Lingonberries will grow here if you're looking for something a little lower. So in general, berries. And for tree fruit, you know, Drew, we're, we're in USDA hardiness zone, you know, seven, eight in the Puget Sound area. So with the exception of some real tropical fruits and citrus, we don't have hardiness zone limits. What we have are heat unit limits. You know, this is such a huge topic. I think I might have to do a separate expert council question just on this, but the quick version is in the Pacific Northwest, the cold in the winter won't be your problem with perennial edibles. The lack of heat in the summer, that's where you need to sort of focus your concern. Your concern is getting your fruit ripe before the growing season ends. So for fruits that typically require a long, hotter summer to properly ripen, fruits like apricots, peaches, figs, you can usually grow these very successfully in the Pacific Northwest, but you have to be careful about how you cite these types of fruits, and you have to be very thoughtful about the varieties you select to ensure that they will give you a good result in our cooler summer environment. Apples, pears, and quinces are pretty easy in this area. Um, pick disease-resistant varieties just to keep your life simple. For apples, Akane is a really nice variety, does very well. For pears, my Bosque outperforms every year with no disease issues. Uh, any quince will do fine in our area. 
Uh, other fruits, Italian prune plums are fantastic. I have three Italian prune plum trees, I think, and I get more fruit than I can practically deal with most uh, most Septembers. And for juicy Asian plums, um, Beauty has been a particularly good variety for me. I have a tree that's about three or four years old, and um, I got enough plums to make 12 gallons of plum wine last summer, so that was pretty nice. Cherries can do really well. Um, any sweet cherry that's resistant to splitting in a rainy climate does pretty well here. Rainier is a good choice if you can give it like a drier microclimate. For dark sweet cherries, I like early burlat or Stella, both very good. Um, pie cherries are pretty easy up here as well. So, uh, you know, you have a really, really wide selection of tree fruits that are just going to thrive in this area. Outside of um, tree fruit and berries, rhubarb is a cinch here, just like everywhere else, I guess. I mean, is there a place where rhubarb's hard? I'm not sure. Same with horseradish. Um, you're you're going to plant it once and you'll have it forever. If you have deep soil, asparagus grows pretty easily here. Just watch out for waterlogged spaces because it does like a decent drainage. Jerusalem artichokes are so easy to grow that if you give them someplace sunny and again, not too soggy, they'll either become, you know, A, the food gift that keeps on giving or B, a weed that you'll never quite get rid of, just depending on your perspective. In a mild winter, globe artichokes overwinter here and become a short-lived perennial. So that's pretty nice. If we get a hard cold snap, your artichokes will freeze out. Um, but, you know, I've gone three or four years on one planting of artichoke, and it's very nice to have big, full artichokes early in the summer from those perennialized plants. I've also got a patch of elephant garlic going on about six years that just sort of keeps spreading. Periodically, I grab a chunk of the garlic, but mostly I just kind of let it do its thing, slowly dividing. So the short answer is, you know, most perennials outside of real true tropicals or citrus do very well in the Pacific Northwest without too much difficulty. You do just have to keep an eye on um, things that don't do well with excessive moisture, things that are prone to root rot. They don't do well in our winters and falls typically. And you have to keep an eye on things that need a lot of summer heat to ripen properly because we just may not have it in our kind of cool moderate maritime climate. But other than that, you know, you've got a lot of options. If you have some specific uh, variety questions or anything like that, um, hit me up in the show notes with a question. I'll do my best to get back to you and answer. Or you can visit a local nursery that uh, specializes in, you know, really good tree fruit, berry, edible perennials, and kind of see the the varieties that they're selecting for their clients. Because typically the managers of these local nurseries um, will know what grows very well in terms of the specific varieties. Okay, Drew, I think that covers the gist of your question. Um, I hope you have great luck um, battling back those blackberries and turning that plot of bramble land into a really wonderful kitchen garden. I'm always thrilled to talk about gardening in the Pacific Northwest. I do have a little more to say about USDA zones, but I think I'll save that for another week. Maybe Jack will indulge me. So that's it. I think have a happy spring, happy gardening, happy perennials. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Jack. Um, I will be back to chat with you guys in a couple of weeks okay this this actually makes me think of one time i was listening to sep holzer at a at an event in montana and somebody had a very similar though much larger problem they had acres of, of land that was overrun with many things but specifically these these pacific northwest invasive blackberries and and sep just said put pigs in it just the way he does. It's kind of the, the, the Austrian-German attitude of just 
pigs in it. And then the person went on this, uh, this soliloquy about how they, they couldn't do pigs and they didn't like pigs and they don't want pigs and pigs aren't right for their system. And what he ended up saying was, if you do not want to have pigs, then you have to do the pigs work. So you might be thinking, Jack, this is a small garden plot. You can't go putting a herd of pigs on it. I agree. And this may be an offshoot and not possible, but, you know, if you went on Craigslist, Nextdoor, places like that, and said, I want to rent your potbelly pig for a job that she or he will love, and you were to bring in a, a potbelly pig or two and, uh, you know, fence them in this area for about three weeks, I don't think there'd be a shred of blackberry left, and you'd have very well-prepared ground. You'd want to keep adding organic matter so that they didn't overcompact it. Straw would be a good choice. Um, it's a long shot, but if you have a neighbor that has a potbelly pig that wouldn't mind loaning them to you for a few weeks, and you just fenced them into the area somehow, uh, as long as they'd be okay with that, and as long as it's not going to cause a problem with your neighbors or whatever. And, you know, stuff like that. No, oh, we want the pig gone. Well, I don't know. You know. And by the time they get the paperwork done to get the pig gone, What pig? Pig, pig? pig done gone. We're just babysitting the pig, you know? It wasn't pork. It was a pot-bellied pig. Yeah. Just a thought. Just a possibility. Anyway, next up I have Stephen Harris trying to solve another farm. Steve's becoming the farmer's market dude, right? Last week about uh, keeping meat cold and stuff like that. Now we have a question of keeping microgreens fresh. Steve, take it away, man. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the expert panel. Hey, last week, um, the previous question was keeping produce and meat cool for a man who was going to the farmer's market. And he needed to keep his meat, you know, basically below 40 degrees Fahrenheit is the typical standard for meat for storage and sale of it. And we talked about how to do this with an insulated trailer and a generator on the trailer and an AC unit and a cool bot. And I asked for anyone with further questions on this to write to me, and someone did with a very good question. With part of Jack's lessons on TSP being about not only starting a small farm, but monetizing it, I decided to bring this man's question to the expert panel this week to provide as an example to all of you that you can do this. The man grows microgreens underneath artificial light. He has about a 30-minute commute to two different farmer's market each week. And he spends about four hours at the farmer's market. He also sells his microgreens to restaurants. And he makes about $100 per farmer's market. So that's like 800 gross a month. You know, 800 a month, that's a house payment. You know, that's a mortgage for an average American house. Now, the problem is the heat really takes a toll on his greens. He sells them in bags and he sells them in clear clamshell holder, um, containers. And the greens tend to wilt and change color towards the end of the farmer's market and his sales drop. So he is cooling the greens the night before. They are transported in coolers with ice to the farmer's market. Uh, like I said, it's about 30 minutes to a farmer's market, so that's not too bad. He spends four hours at the market. There is no electricity, 
And he wrote me a very long email with extensive details. Like, it took him probably an hour to write this. He wanted something simple, something elegant, something easy. So, I called him. And I talked to him, asked him a few questions, and this is what we came up with. Step one, he's outside in a farmer's market in the sun. He's in the open air. So put up two pop-up tents, uh, two pop-up canopies, one for him and the produce uh, to keep the sun off of the produce and thus, you know, it wilting, uh, and one in front of his produce out there for the customers. Cool customers stay longer, talk more, and thus buy more. People see a tent and they expect something to be there. Vegas did a design study on on where people gravitated to play slot machines. They found out, to their surprise, that the places that had a relatively low ceiling had a lot more players. Humans tend to gravitate towards a low roof for some reason. So this keeps the sun off his plants, step one. Also, go to vistaprints.com and get some banners to put on top of your tents. They're up there. You might as well tell the world what you got for sale. He's tried putting coolers out with ice in them, angled towards the crowds, but sales were a lot lower. People want to see a table full of stuff where they can see it all and not sort through a cooler. So how do you keep greens cool yet have them out for display for four hours in the middle of a summer heat wave? I told him I wanted him to get a bunch of one-gallon Ziploc freezer freezer bags and to fill them about one-third to one-half full of water, lay them flat in his freezer and freeze them into a sheet or a tile, it's more like a floor tile, uh, a, you know, something about one inch thick of ice, and have enough of these to almost cover his table display area. Next, I want him to go to Home Depot and to get some one-inch foam board. It'll be pink or blue in color. Then I told him to cut it out just a little smaller than his table display area so he could put down some foam on the table, and then I wanted him to make some six-inch walls that went all the way around his foam on the table. So he now has a big, shallow box of foam. Put the sheets of Ziploc bagged ice in the shallow box, lay them flat on the the foam in the box, and then put his bagged and clamshell greens on top of the ice. Now, you glue all the foam together with liquid nails. What we are doing is forming a microclimate. Cold air is heavier than warm air and will fill the foam box with cooler air and will stay that way unless you, there's a good breeze blowing to disrupt it. It will form its own microclimate. Yet his greens are now out for display to all, for all, easy to see, easy to access, and kept cool enough so they won't wilt. All this without a battery, without an inverter, without fancy, complicated stuff. This is all passive. It it, it works just off of the sheer simplicity in physics. 
So what he is going to do, he's going to make his back wall, the one where he's standing, about six inches tall, and the front wall towards the customers, about four inches tall, and he's going to angle the bottom piece of foam so it's at an angle, so it's like a sports stadium seating, you know, curved upwards, or sloped upwards. This way, people can see over the, over the wall and see his greens from a distance and get drawn in. Hey, what's that? That looks neat. For the hottest months of the year, if this is not quite enough cooling, he is going to take some plexiglass and make a lid for the whole cooler so his greens are under glass and kept cool. This will keep a breeze from disrupting your microclimate that is formed by the cold air staying boxed in. But instead of having one sheet of plexiglass across the whole thing, he's going to cut it into four or five pieces and just butt them up against each other. No hinges, no nothing. So all you do is lift up a small piece of plexi and put it on the piece next to it, reach in, get your greens, and then move it back. I mean, really keep it simple thinking here. I told him to paint his foam with simple $10 a gallon exterior latex paint from Home Depot. This will give it a good solid skin and protect it from light degradation. If this is not durable enough, get some floor laminate, uh, quarter-inch plywood, almost anything thin and durable, and cut it up and liquid nails it to the foam so it takes the impacts of being transported rather than the foam does. He started his sideline business in microgreens because of Jack Spearco and the Survival Podcast with the instructions that Jack had put out. I asked him specifically about this. Jack said, you can do this, and he did it. He also listens to a podcast from a guy in Canada that's focused on microgreens. It's amazing what you can do when there is no one around to tell you that you can't do it. He basically makes enough each month from microgreens to pay his mortgage. How do you like your mortgage or even your car payment each month to be paid for with something you grow in your garage or basement under some lights? So today's TSP answer is really one to, to grow on. Having a second source of income and paying off debt is truly a step forward towards financial and personal freedom. You need to get off the hamster wheel and stop playing the 40-40-40 game. 40 hours a week for 40 years of, of, of your life with 40% going in taxes. Both Jack and I are self-employed. We both have formal corporations that are used for business income, expenses, and taxes. It's $650 just for my accountant to prepare my yearly corporate taxes. There are days when working for yourself is just the biggest bitch in the world. You are the only person to motivate yourself, the only person to come up with the stuff that you have to do, and then you have to do it and do it right. Let alone you have to do this after you come home from work on a daily basis when you start your business. As one of my mentors called this, he called this the second shift. It makes for a long day, and you will have to learn a lot. Every day the lion must wake up and run a little faster to catch the gazelle. Every day the gazelle has to wake up and run a little faster to keep ahead of, of the lion. One is either going to starve or one is either going to get eaten. Unfortunately, no one can tell you what the matrix is. They must see it for themselves. 
You can take the blue pill and it's all over. You wake up tomorrow like nothing happened. Or you can take the red pill and find out just how deep this rabbit hole hole goes. All we are offering is the truth. I've left Jack with a link to three minutes of The Matrix on YouTube. When you watch it and think about the 40-40-40 plan and starting your own business, it's dead on. I'm heavily at work right now. I'm making a new video, new videos, and lots of new stuff coming out, some of which will blow your mind. Oh, my gosh. I did not know I could do that type of stuff. I even have a video dedicated to solar coming out. So if you want to be the first to see this new education from me, please go to Stephen1234.com. And at the very top of the screen, you can sign up for my newsletter and announcements. If you have any more questions on this subject or you got any other questions, please email them to me. My email is in the upper right-hand corner of Stephen1234.com, or you can send them into Jack underneath TSP Expert, and I will take care of them for an expert panel question. Thank you very much. Talk to you guys next week. Absolutely fantastic stuff with Stephen Harris. I'll let you know I just popped off an email to him and said, Dude, what link to what segment of what part of the Matrix are you talking about? Because when you sent me your response, you did not mention the Matrix in the text portion, nor did you include a link. Now, it's possible he sent me that separate email and I deleted it because I was rushing my ass off. But hopefully he'll get back to me before I finish post-production today, and I'll include it in the show notes. If it's not there, hold tight. I'm sure he'll get it to me sooner or later, and I will append it for you. I'm interested to see it. I've always thought that movie taught us a lot of things about life, but I never really thought of it from the entrepreneurial side of the perspective, more as the state versus the anti-state. Of course, that's how you become a good entrepreneur. You realize that the state is the problem. And you solve the problems outside of the matrix of the state, right? So really interested to see that. Uh, next, I have our final question of the day for council member, anyway, for uh, expert council member Nick Ferguson. Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer your questions on homesteading, permaculture, plant propagation, and how to make a homestead work on a tight budget. And the question I have today is from Justin, who's all the way over in the UK right near the East Malling Research Center. I'm a little envious. How cool to be so close to such a repository of knowledge. I mean, they're doing some pretty cool stuff over there. Anyways, he's wondering how many pieces of scion wood can he harvest from his fruit trees without killing them? Well, the short answer is that you should be able to harvest all of the previous year's growth for scion wood without harming the tree. Boom. Done. But I'll explain a little bit better. Every year, the tree will bud out and grow new branches. Sometimes they're really skinny and tiny. Sometimes when there's a lot of root mass and not a whole lot of top growth, they'll make great big thick shoots. So if you're going with a standard whip and tongue graft or V-cut or a mega cut, some method like that, then you'll probably be shooting for cyan material that's around pencil diameter and you'll want to have one to two buds on each piece of cyan wood. And you'll want to match the rootstock diameter to the cyan. So if you have Pencil diameter rootstock, you want pencil diameter cyan wood. And generally, the bigger the diameter, the easier it is going to be to kind of line everything up. But I like to shoot for around 
uh, pencil diameter, and that's kind of industry standard. But if you want to learn a slightly better method that will get you far more quantity of cyan, then you should learn how to chip bud or T bud or shield bud. There's lots of different names for it, and those are there. The methods are a little bit different. But they're all terms for different methods of grafting that use a single bud from your scion instead of like two or three buds per uh, stick of scion wood with the earlier methods that I mentioned. And it generally involves inserting that tiny piece of scion material underneath the outer bark of the rootstock and tying it so that there's good cambium contact. And you have to learn when... The bark is slipping, though, and what that means is that the rootstock will be in a stage of active growth where the vascular cambium is actively growing and the bark can be cut and peeled easily away from the rootstock with little damage. And what you do is you kind of make an incision and then you peel that bark away from the rootstock so it opens it up and you see the green cambium underneath and then you slip the little bud the little piece of bud, cyan wood, in there, and then you just tie it back tight, not so tight that you're going to, like, you know, constrict the, the cambium, but you want it firmly seated in there so that there's good cambium contact so it can heal back to itself. And uh, and that's that's kind of the, the short and, and quick answer. But what I do is, well, kind of the best thing to do is to head over to the mauling center and see if... Someone over there will teach you a handful of grafting methods. But if they're too busy or they don't do that, then just get on YouTube and you'll have to sort through lots of bad videos on how to do it. Awful audio and, and bad uh, camera angles, but you'll, you know, if you spend enough time watching a bunch of the different videos that you can find there, you'll probably get enough angles and close-ups to learn what it is they're doing and and get a good idea on how to do that. But the rest is just practice. So it's a lot of fun to make new trees from almost nothing. I hope you find a lot of success. Um, and a quick note for everyone stateside, we're doing a plant sale and get-together April 29th here at the Ferguson Homestead in Saline, Louisiana. There's tons of different plants for sale. We're going to open it up. Like If you want to show up Friday to set up camp, stay all day Saturday, and stay part of the day Sunday. I don't care. I am not providing any meals. You're taking care of your own food and beverage needs. We're just encouraging everyone to bring some things to trade and barter with everyone else. If you've been to one of Jack's workshops, think of it like a big barter blanket event. So if you guys are interested in homesteading skills and getting some cool plants from me and some other great stuff from everyone else that's going to be coming. I imagine people are going to be bringing some animals, some things like tools and soaps and all sorts of stuff like that. Come on down to Louisiana, check out my homestead, pick up some plants, have a great time. There's no charge for the event. Just come on, come all. There's camping available next door and we'll have a campfire. I hope to have some rabbits for sale, maybe some chicken and quail. So shoot me an email and let me know if you're coming or hit up the Homegrown Liberty Facebook group and let me know if you're coming there. We've got an event on Facebook where you can check out the details or you can email me, nick at homegrownliberty.com. To hear more from me, check out my website, homegrownliberty.com. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Do good things. 
Okay, good stuff from Nick Ferguson, or so I call him Nick Ferguson, right? Yeah, because he loves to throw seed. Uh, I, I have a question to, to kind of back clean up with today. That's it's it's kind of a tough one because it gets into some technical analysis, and I can only send Josh in the right direction with it. But I think it'll be important for a lot of you setting up sites and or podcasts. So he says, Jack, bottom line up front, any tips for getting traction for a new podcast? First, grade A plus for following the formula. Give me your question, then give me your details. He says, details. <clears throat> I've been posting a show five days a week, technical problems at first expect, start for expected. Now I'm up to the 40s episodes-wise. I've not had a single listener outside of friends and family and self-testing. I'm on Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, and iStream from my site. Not expecting magic, but literally a single listener would be a sign of hope. I plan to officially reassess for success or failure at six months based on how many subscribers or listeners. My podcast is about homesteading, but more specific purpose of establishing a physical community with an agricultural centerpiece in eastern Tennessee. <clears throat> thanks for advance and help, uh, for the help, and thanks for the help with buzzing issue. Linux has slightly different interface needed to be on average instead of constant. Keep up the great work. Uh, Josh. Okay, so Josh's website is buildingcommunity.today. And uh, my, my, my first question was, <clears throat> when I go to buildingcommunity.today, what do I see? And when I go to buildingcommunity.today, I don't see a podcast. I don't even see anything that really tells me that the main purpose of this site is a podcast. I see um, some articles and things like that. And there is a button right at the top of the navigation plane that says home. And then one says podcast and one says forums. Um, so he's got that going on. He's got a theme. It's a great, big, but if I land on this page, I don't really know it's a podcast. So if we're going to do any advertising, we want to at least be making sure that whatever we're advertising, where we're linking to is building community today slash podcast on that note. The next thing I did was run a backlink check. I went to Moz uh, to do that, M-O-Z. Uh, you can go just Google Moz backlink check, and you can use their free tool to do a backlink check. And it literally shows no backlinks. I ran another uh, tool for checking backlinks. This means it sees, according to Google, what other sites link to yours. And it showed me a bunch of weird foreign sites. <clears throat> I was a little bit worried about a spam penalty because some of these are like, <clears throat> link check tools and stuff like that, yet they have links to his site and the page is not specifically about his site. These are crawler type pages, but when I reassess the Moz backlink check, uh, which Moz has great tools for you guys that want to do your own SEO. Be careful how much money you spend because if you buy a tool and don't know how to use it, it just sits in the toolbox. Okay. I'll leave it at that for now. So when I, when I checked that, it said there's no spam concerns. There's, there's a zero on spams. And basically those, those links are just links that are ignored by Google. So the first thing we need is some links to your site, and to your individual episodes. Don't go buy in links from link farms and stuff like that. Reach out to other bloggers and things like that and see about getting a link from them to an article and things like that. And just start telling people that those friends and family, that are willing, if you have an article, please link to my site. 
And we'll get into how to structure links here in a second, but you got to get some links. No one's linking to you, which means probably no one's finding your site. So then I ran an index check on Google, and I'm not going to explain how to do all this, but basically I wanted to see, does Google have your site indexed? Because there's a little click button in, uh, in, in WordPress, and a lot of times when people uh, install WordPress, sometimes the install has it already set, and it basically tells the robots from the search engines, stay the hell away from my site, don't index me. That's not good. Uh, you don't have that problem. Your site is well indexed. But when I looked at your indexes, um, I'll see, for example, your most recent episode, episode 46, March 10, 2017. That's the title tag. Uh-oh. Because who searches the hell for that? But then that got me thinking, hmm, what does he look like in iTunes? So I went to iTunes and searched for Building Community Podcast and found out there's a lot of podcasts about Building Community, and you did show up. But the only way you're going to show up in iTunes right now is if somebody specifically types in Building Community Podcast. If they just type in Building Community and all other types of things other than podcasts come up in the iTunes store, you know where to be found. And that's a pretty broad, nonspecific search term. We may even want to think about changing the name of the podcast. The website can be buildingcommunity.today, but we might change, and I don't know what, but we might want to do a little research and see what might people be looking for, because if they're looking for it on Google and Bing and Yahoo, they would probably be looking for it in iTunes and Stitcher and things like that. So are people looking for something that's not got a lot of competition? And we might angle it that way a little bit, or we might stick with it, but here's what we got to do. We've got to stop... The fact that in our feed, going into Stitcher and iTunes and into the search engines, your title tag is episode 46, March 10, 2017. Can't have that. So one of the first things we're going to need to do is install an SEO optimization plugin for WordPress. I use the all-in-one SEO pack. Yoast SEO is something more people use today. When I started using all-in-one SEO, That didn't exist yet. I'm comfortable with it, so I keep using it. We want to do a good title tag and description tag for every post. And we want to, in that title tag and that description tag to talk about what the freaking show is about. Because the show is not about episode 46, March 10, 2017. Okay? That's not what it's about. And uh, so let me give you a for instance. And I'll pause so I can pull up an example. I just pulled up a random episode uh, of my podcast, uh, episode 1957, The Beginner's Guide to Growing Food. It's not titled, uh, I don't know what day this was, someday. It's not titled March 17th, episode 1957. It's titled episode 1957, The Beginner's Guide to Growing Food. That way people know what it's about. That was the central theme of that episode. Down where the title tag is, it's called, I went ahead with that title because it fit within 60 characters and it made sense. And in the description tag, you, you will see when you install your SEO optimization thing, which basically is when somebody searches for you on the, on the, on, on Google, and if they find your result, they'll see the title tag in blue and then a little blur below. That's the description tag. It says, when it comes to getting started growing your own food, a basic intensively managed garden is the perfect first step. Today we discuss how to do that. And anywhere that content's uh, distributed and syndicated, that's most of the time how it's going to show up, including probably in your RSS feed that actually sends your content to Stitcher and iTunes and things like that. 
I also use a plug-in for my podcast called PodPress. I don't know what you're using for yours, um, but they don't make Pod, – PodPress isn't made anymore, but it still works, and I don't want to change it, so I've left it alone. But you need to dig into whatever plug-in you're using, and if you're not using a podcasting plug-in, you need to be using one. Don't use the native thing, because then you end up with this problem, right? If you just drop an audio file into WordPress, it'll spit out in an RSS feed, which is really simple syndication. It'll end up in you know iTunes and Stitcher and all that, and it'll work, but it'll just take whatever it gets. With a podcast plugin, you can go into your plugin and you can set things up like your logo, the title of your podcast, keywords for your podcast, the description of your podcast, so that people that are searching for things other than the absolute name of your podcast will find your podcast when they're looking for podcasts to listen to. That's not happening for you right now. Your podcast is simply uh, listed. In, in, uh, in iTunes right now is Building Community Today podcast with no description whatsoever and your individual episodes have no description whatsoever. So people find my podcast every day in iTunes not just because they search for survival podcasts, which I come up right at the top. That was key strategic targeting of something that at the time, eight years ago, had very low competition and high search. So you got to do some research on that. Okay, But There'll be people, how to grow a garden or urban farming or whatever, and they'll find not my podcast, but an individual episode of my podcast. This is casting the wider net. All of these things have to be addressed, and, and, and I'm going to be blunt, and I don't mean to be a dick, but your your site is a mess from a technical perspective. Um, I would say this. You have no listeners right now. I'm, I'm leery about this because I don't want you to lose momentum, okay? Uh, I'm very leery about this because I don't want you to lose momentum. But it would be a really good idea for you to right now to just stop produ production for a little bit. To go learn basic search engine optimization and to go back to episode one and every point forward to change your title into the, the core idea of your site Uh, or of that episode, and do it in 60 characters or less, and to change your text on the individual page. Because what he's doing is he's doing something similar to what we do with a history segment. And he's got the full history segment written out at the top of the post, instead of the main outline for the show and the description of show, which comes second. Don't do that. Don't do that. Put the idea of the show prominently first, and I would actually take and just talk, put, put a link to your history segment, put it on a different page altogether so it doesn't dilute the content from a search engine standpoint. The next thing is I'm looking at his latest episode. Here's his tags. Minimalist, tiny house living, tiny, mini, off-grid, getting back to basics, simple, family, natural. Stop! Okay, there's like a hundred more. Okay, a tag, if you go to the survivalpodcast.com, uh, and they're not even tags, they're just hashtags with, with no kind of hyperlink. Um, if that's what you're actually doing for tags, make sure that we're getting that out of the way. And all those little, um, all those little hashtags that are dead down there are just wasted text. Get that shit off of there. That's, that's not doing you any good at all right now. 
So all those little hashtags at the bottom of every episode. The next thing is you have like a pig of the day or something like that. Somehow that's showing up in iTunes when I look at your individual episodes as a description of your. You need to get that under control. Anything that's like an addition, like a history segment, a segment of the day or something like that, that stuff needs to be secondary. Whatever's being displayed, so you need to figure out why it's displaying that way. And if your show of the day is about, and I don't even know what your show's about, and I don't mean your, your total idea. I don't. When I look at, it, I don't know, and that's a problem. And that's gonna, you know, it says nobody cares about your freedom more than you do. Let's protect and grow freedom by building one community at a time because we all want to do good things. Interviews, participants, partners. Well, is that what this episode's about? What is this episode about? And I'm tearing it up, but you, I'm not, I'm not being a dick, Josh. You need me to tear this up because this is why this isn't working. You need. When you, when you go look at my site and you're sitting there and you're looking at an individual episode, you may not want to listen to that episode, but you know what the hell it's about. There's a title that tells you what it's about. There's a description that tells you what it's about. There's bullet points that tell you what it's about. Generally, there's an image that somehow correlates it. And there's very little peripheral fluff. Anything like a history segment or something that's referenced is linked to. It's not drug in, creating duplicate content. And I'm telling you a big thing. So, like the other thing is, if you go to my site and you kind of scroll down, eventually you'll see this 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 weird looking thing with all these words of different sizes that are all hyperlinked. Alternative energy, Amazon item of the day, BOL, business, cooking. I'm actually reading mine. Cooking AZ, debt disaster planning, etc. Those are actual tags. And when you do a post in WordPress, you can put tags in there. Don't put a hundred tags. Put two or three at most, because all you're doing each one of those tags creates a new page that has li lists of all the episodes tagged under them. And you only want to do the ones that are very specific to that, so you don't create duplicate content because the search engines devalue your whole result. And I'm just getting started. And I wish I wish I had the time to do more, but this should point you in the right direction. You need to get control of the way that your feed is going out in syndication. If you don't know what that means, you need to look it up and learn. You've obviously figured this out enough because you've got it working. Um, you need to get inside your WordPress, and you need to work on your SEO. A good, And I don't mean getting all complicated and doing shit that people try to sell you for $10,000 a month. I mean a good title and description tag within the limits of characters for each individual episode that specifically states the main idea and point of that episode. You need to reformat your text on every single episode because you've already done that work. Don't let it go to waste. So that the first body of the text is the primary stuff that your show, that that episode is about. Not the broad topic of the show, the specific topic, title, description, and body of that specific. Take your peripherals like your history segments, create a whole different section of your website for those, copy, uh, cut and paste it over so it goes away from your main article postings, link to it as a reference in your show notes. That'll go a long way right there. Next, if you're going to spend any money on advertising, I recommend you do the following. Go to my site, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Look at the top. You'll see all these different tags. One of them says subscribe. Click that link. I don't do a lot of advertising anymore. I have, after eight years of putting out content every day and following the rules I've been giving you, a tremendous long tail of organic traffic coming to the site every day. People that never heard of it before finding it because they were looking for something research, you'll get there in time. 
But at first, you might do some advertising. I did some Google AdSense or Ad, AdWords advertising. I did some Bing advertising with their paid search. I did some Yahoo when I started out. Not a lot. A couple hundred bucks a month is what I did. I also did from StumbleUpon. I don't even know if they're around anymore. That was actually pretty good converting traffic back in the day. They had a survivalist category where I was able to specifically target people that wanted sites about survivalism. So that was great. But I did not send them to the survivalpodcast.com. I sent them to the survivalpodcast.com slash subscribe. And the headline on that says, Welcome to the only online radio show 100% dedicated to survival in today's changing world. Which was true when I wrote it. It's not true anymore. I'm leaving it there. I was first. I get to say that. There's a video of me talking about modern survivalism. And then it says, you're invited to tune in for free several times a week for new 25 to 40 minute episode. I really should update this. But I don't care. It works. It converts. It's gold. And it tells you all the different types of topics we talk about. And there's a link, a, a, a form. And it says, Subs you know, subscribe here. Put your name and email and tell us how you found us. And this builds my email list. And every time an episode is published, an email goes out to that email list and brings them in. I know you're saying you have no subscribers, but you will. And you need to be building a, a relationship with them through all means. Facebook, Twitter, email, you name it. So if you're going to advertise, by God, by God, by God, by God, please Build a page that's designed to welcome a brand new visitor to your site for the first time and send them there. And if you do different forms of advertising, you may make a different landing page, in air quotes, for each method of advertising. Welcome. Glad that you joined us from Google. You could go that far if you wanted to. All right. That's about as much as I can give you. And that gives you a hell of a lot of work to do. But you got to do it. you got to do it. And, and I'm also going to say something. The history thing you're doing, if you like doing it, that's fine. It's a little close to like full-on emulation of me, right? It doesn't bother me, but I'm, 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 when, I'm gonna, when I'm going to warn you guys that want to do podcasts about, you need to emulate my methods rather than my format, okay? Everything I'm talking about today that I'm giving you, like here's how to set this up, these are methodologies, Title tags, description tags, putting the content forward first, making sure the visitor knows what the hell it, they're supposed to do when they get there. Right? I mean, I would have, you don't really have a site. You have a podcast that's hosted on a site. Your homepage has these articles that I may or may not care about. I would change your title of your site if you're, if you're insistent on building community today, uh, building community today podcast. And I would, I wouldn't even do that. Okay, fine, you have dot .today, that's great, that's wonderful. You can build a brand with that eventually, but right now I would change your title of your main front page of your website and in your banner to Building Community Today Podcast. I'd probably do The Building to me. Not, not a new domain name, just the title. Okay? And I would make sure that people that are looking for a podcast about building community are likely to find you. And I would probably change your homepage to the slash podcast page. That would be my homepage. I would go straight there. And I would put an about, and I would talk about it about, about the show, and maybe you put an articles uh, category in, or, I mean, uh, articles page in, and then you take those articles and put them there. Look at what I've done. This is completely opposite of what you've done. And, and it's why it's not working. Because the person who's thinking this is exactly what I've been looking for that's actively searching for what you're doing can't find you. They just, they just can't find you. 
And notice I didn't say your logo sucks, but your logo sucks. Doesn't matter right now. My logo sucked too when I started out. I worried about exactly what you're doing, producing content. The difference is you have to put the content in a format where it can be found. I hope this helps you, and I hope it helps a lot of you. And some of you that are like, this is over your, your my head. If you're not going to do this stuff, fine. Just, just write it off. If you want to do this, you need to go back and listen to this like ten times until what I'm saying makes sense to you, and you listen to it, and then you go research the part you didn't understand and come back and listen to it again, and I'll, I'm going to tell you why. I just gave you a thousand dollars minimum in free consulting on how to run a website and or a podcast. A thousand dollars minimum value. If applied properly, a hundred thousand dollars of value. And I don't say that to blow myself. I'm telling you that because this is the kind of stuff where you start saying it and you see the person that said, I want to know how to do this. And you see their eyes start to like roll like, I don't want to do all that. That's It's not hard. It's not complicated. You can freaking figure it out. It'll take you about a week of jacking around with it. And then you have a skill that people are out right now selling for hundreds of dollars an hour. And I won't pay those people hundreds of dollars an hour to do it for me because I can do it for myself. But you can either go pay one of them or you can be one of them. And there's a lot more. I don't want to put down people to do it because there's some very advanced techniques to search engine optimization. And con See, we shouldn't even call it search engine optimization anymore, right? We should call it content optimization because the same information the search engine uses, peripherals like Google Play, get into that, by the way. That's been good for me since I did it. Um, iTunes and all, they're drawing the same type of information and they're displaying the results for people just like the search engines are. So I, I, I'm searching for a podcast about pigs and you have a pig segment in every one. I don't see jack shit about that. In, in, uh, except when I find episode 45, whatever. You, you got to straighten the content out. And again, guys, when you're building a site, worry less about the logo, more about the content. And, and don't have scattered content. And that's what the, again, and you know what? I listened to an episode. It's a great podcast. That's a great podcast. So let's see if we can help them out straight out of the gate. Uh, buildingcommunity.today. I'll put a link in the show notes. Get by. Give the guys some subscriptions. But, uh, dude, just that's not gonna, that, that's not gonna fix this for you. You're gonna have to fix your content stream. Anyway, guys, if you like this show and you like what I do and you want to support me and, and my work, one of the ways you can do that is by doing your, your, your shopping when you shop on Amazon at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com. When you get there, you'll see a link. That link says you can go see all the Amazon deals of the day. Click that link. See the cool stuff Amazon has available for you. You don't want any of it? Shop for whatever you want, buy it, you just supported our show. It's that easy. The next thing you can do there is you click another link, you pull up all of my reviews. You'll pull up all my reviews, and uh, you find the Amazon reviews, you take a look at them, you say, maybe that, maybe that product works for me. Check it out, see if it does. And about every day, work days anyway, Monday through Friday, I have a new item up for review uh, for you guys. And today I have, oh shit, I just realized something. There's a, a whole list of plugins that I wanted to give this gentleman for his blog. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold off on it, because uh, that was a big segment. I'm going to do on Monday, tune in, I'm going to give you the, the plugins that you should have in your blog, your WordPress blog, to get good search engine visibility beyond the ones that I mentioned, specifically things that help the search engines index you quicker. I'll do that next week. Anyway, so back to it. So I do have an item for review every day for you guys uh, from Amazon during the week. Today I have 
a product that you're thinking, Jack's on a fishing spree thing, and all he's thinking about is fishing, and you're not wrong, okay? Between working on the aquaponic system and it being spring and spring springing, yeah, I am. But this product is cool. If you, if you saw my video on the fishing bag, it was in there just for a second. It's called the Bubble Box by Marine Metal. And you might think, what the hell would I need a bubble box for, right? Well, if you fish, you put two D-cell batteries in this thing, and it blows bubbles into water for you for about 40 straight hours. Let me repeat that. 40 hours of runtime, continuous runtime, on two D-cell batteries. So if you fish and you want to bring fish home while they're still alive or you want to keep bait alive, this thing is the way to go. By the way, it costs 8 bucks. How do you like that? The battery, if you buy a 12-pack of batteries, they cost more than the box. And they last a long time. All of my buddies that are hardcore fishermen uh, have at least one of these things. But what else? Can, he said, well, maybe I don't fish. Do you have a fish tank at home? You know, like with fish swimming around, like the ones looking at me right now? Um, what if your power goes out? You going to plug your fish tank into your generator? Now, you might have to if you got a heater in there and it's off for a long time and it's a cold time of year or something like that. But in general, you know, you can get through a, a, an outage with, with your fish, but oxygen levels start to go down. Well, you can throw a couple batteries in one of these things, toss it in your fish tank, keep your fish alive. Same thing with if you have an aquaponic system, you know, put one in each IBC, you have two IBCs in your aquaponic system, throw one in each IBC. This is not good long term, but it helps you get through those outages with a couple D batteries. Let me put it to you this way. If you bought two of them, because you had two tanks or two whatever, and one 12 pack of batteries, you could have two of them run for five straight days. Two of them run for five straight. You bought one in a 12-pack of batteries, you'd run it for 10 straight freaking days. Okay, you don't have fish, and you don't go fishing, so you don't care. Hold on. Do you brew beer, or do you make mead? And do, you, do you play around with really, that's not forever, but for really high-gravity stuff? The way you really get a super high alcohol yield from a beer or a meat, like 18% type thing fermenting with yeast without going to a yeast that makes it taste like butt, okay, is one of the things you want, in addition to really good nutrient, is really good O2 levels. So if you're going to do this, you need one. You don't use your fishing one for this that's got fish skank in it and stuff like that. You keep it clean and separate. You sanitize your, your tube and your air stone before you stick it in your carboy. But you get your carboy there. And you drop that sucker in there and you turn it on for about six hours. And then you pitch your yeast and throw your airlock on it. And you watch it go... Yep. So it even does that. So I try to give you... you know, I try, try not to give you things that are one-trick ponies. Bubble Box by Marine Metal Aerator. Check them out today at tspaz.com. Remember, you can always help us out by doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. Make sure you check out those deals of the day. By the way, if you're interested in the Kingbow lighting system, the, 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 the plant lights, wait. Unless you really need them now, wait. I'll be running a special post on the 13th. I got an email from Kingbow. They're going on sale for like 20% off. So a lot of you have picked those up. If you need more, you decide you want to get on them, I got the inside scoop on a big sale coming. I'll do a post when they go on sale for you. Actually, I'll do it in advance of the sale so you know when it is. I'll give you a link and everything. So that's cool. All right, with that, let's get into the, uh, the song of the day today. This song is a song. It's one of my favorite songs. 
I've actually played it before. John Adam, who went through and picked out historically significant songs from each year, a song from that year that typified that year, um, picked this one out, and I, I couldn't be more happy about it. The song was actually written in the 50s, though. Um, and it had actually been released previously. And again, we're in 1965. And I'm going to bet 99% of the people listening to this show today have heard this song before. Uh, it's been in so many movies about the 60s that it's almost impossible that even if you don't listen to this kind of music, you haven't heard it. It's by The Birds, spelled B-Y-R-D-S, and it's called Turn, Turn, Turn. And this song's right out of the Bible. It's out of Ecclesiastes. And uh, for a lot of people, it's, that's, that's what they want to focus on. But here's the thing. The song was written in the 50s. It was released, I think, twice prior to this. And in those other releases, it, it, didn't, it didn't take off. It just didn't take off. And uh, there's people who say, well, the Bible is timeless and all. And it, it certainly is. But it doesn't mean that there's not parts of it that are more specific to a time. Now, in addition to the sound that this band has, I mean, I don't think there's there's a lot of covers been done of this song, and actually this version was a cover since it wasn't the original. But I don't think there's anybody that can make this song what it is the way that they can with their sound. It, it's just it's just fantastic. But, you know, this song is about the time, and I kind of was talking about that in the history segment today. There's a time for war. There's a time when we need to be going to war. There's a time when we don't. Even when there's bad people over there. There's bad people in a lot of places. If we're going to go to war with every group of people that's bad in the world, we're going to have no peace. No peace. So there was a time we were being called to war, and some were saying, no, this is not the time for that. And in, in, in history, if we look back honestly through history without blind patriotism, All the people that we belittled as a society and called draft dodgers and stuff like that about that time, they were right. They were right. And people say, oh, the government lost the war. Well, the government was the one sending people to war. So I don't want to be sent to, some, to war by somebody who intends to lose it or doesn't intend to fight it properly. And we'll let that go. But just understand, that's only one piece of this. The civil rights debate is in full steam. So is the woman's rights debate beginning to... Re really, it's going to pick up heavy, heavy, heavy in the 70s, but it's already started here. And the nation is transforming in massive ways in 1965. And it was a ripe environment for this song to come in. And when we look at strife and trouble and turmoil around us today and people fighting and calling each other names and, and burning shit in the streets and breaking windows. And we, we tend to think, like, what's going on? This is nothing new. There are always turnings. And we're in the middle of another one now. And if you think about it, 1965, about 52 years ago, 67 is when it's really going to hit its peak. It's exactly 54 years. 54 years. You're talking about two generations. Two generations. You think about 25, 26 years old. That's about time a person becomes an adult and goes out into the adult world and does adult things and starts having families and stuff like that. Two generations. There's a turning with each one. And since 
mid-60s, we've had these two more. We're going into, I, I believe, what some people would call the fourth turning. And I don't want to say any more, but it might be a book you might want to get a copy of and read. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Turn, turn, turn There is a season Turn, turn